Hello and welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Today's episode is for all you games lovers out there because I'm speaking to award-winning game designer, Frank Lance. Now, Frank's designed a list of games longer than your arm, including things like Lego World Builder, Gearheads, Babel Royale, and my personal favorite, Universal Paperclips. He was also the director of NYU's Game Center for much of the last 15 years, and recently wrote this amazing book called The Beauty of Games, which honestly is one of the reasons I wanted to speak to him today, because he's someone who truly gets what games are on a like fundamental level. And much of this conversation is around the sort of philosophy of games. But there's also the more practical side of things, what games can teach us about the way the world works, how they can improve our thinking. And of course, we also dig into what it takes to actually design games in the first place. So yeah, an incredibly fun one for me, as you can imagine. I hope you'll enjoy it too. Let's dig in. So, Frank, I had the most fun researching uh, for this episode that I've ever had so far. Wow. You know, not only reading your book, which is gorgeous, The Beauty of Games, um, but one of the things I was like, okay, so what games has he designed? And I noticed that you had designed the Paperclip Maximizer mm-hmm. game, which I'd heard of yeah. uh, a number of years ago, but for some reason had never gotten around to actually playing. So oh, I was wow. like, you know what, I'm going to play this. I'll try it out for half an hour. You know, I need to finish reading his book and I've got some other things I need to research. So I just, you know, started it off. Yeah. And next thing I know, six hours has, have oh, gone good. by. Oh, Seven hours. I've got, you know, I'm off earth now and I'm <laughs> trying to like play with all the 10 variables of my von Neumann probes. Yeah. And I end up losing the entire day. Yeah. I do successfully end up colonizing the universe. Oh, good. That to me is the mark of a brilliant game. Something that, you know, a casual person ends up getting sucked into, well, I don't know if I'm a casual game player, but someone who intends to play something just to try right. it out and ends up losing an entire day. Wow. Thank you. That's awesome to hear. That makes me very happy. Uh, that's exactly what you are trying to do when you make a game. You know, right. So, exactly so, so tell me, to. okay, first of all, why, why a paperclip maximizer? Yeah. Uh, what made you decide to design this one? And what is it about it, do you think, that has made it so successful? Well, I sat down to make Universal Paperclips as a programming exercise. Because, you know, I um, had been making games with kind of a larger team for some time. And then at a certain point, um, I sold my studio, um, got acquired, and uh, I found myself, okay, well, I want to make something just by myself. Like, this is, you know, I'm I'm an indie game developer. I can make something by myself. So I I sat down to, to kind of think, okay, what is a simple game that I could make on my own and I thought I would do it like in a week or two. Um, and I had, um, I had the idea of making a, uh, a, a clicker game, an incremental game, uh, because I liked them. And I like games that look stupid but aren't. And I think um, clicker games are the kind of game, they're like match three games. They're the, the, the go-to game for you denigrate them to indicate that you have good taste. Oh, yeah, that's just like a you know, stupid clicker game or whatever. Well, defi- okay, define what clicker game means for people. It's kind of a genre that they're sometimes called incremental games. Um, they are very, very simple games that uh, increase over time kind of exponentially, um, but almost kind of play themselves uh, in, sometimes. Um, it's, a, it's a genre that 
probably started with uh, Progress Quest, which was like a joke about RPGs where you set up a little uh, RPG character and then it just plays itself. Like it goes out on quests mm-hmm. and kills monsters and gets loot and goes back to town and buys better weapons and it just keeps going and you just run it on your computer and you just watch it. And it turned out like, oh, this haha, it's a funny joke. But it turned out like it was kind of fascinating and people got really into it. And even though it was almost like a zero player game, mm. it was like something there. Define zero player game. There's no player. I mean, it's just the game, right? right. It's the game playing itself. It's like, it's right? like Conway's game of life or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. It's like really right? basic starting rules. You press play. And evolution takes care of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so Progress Quest had a little bit of this. And then um, my good friend Ian Bogost uh, made a game called Cow Clicker, which, again, was meant to be a joke about games. It was, uh, it was a Facebook game. And uh, it was like, oh, you have a cow and you click on it. And that's it. That's the whole game. And then you can see your friends. Your friends can click on your cow. You can click on your friend's cows. And you just are racking up some resource called clicks and and as you click on cows they go moo and then and then it's like there's a time limit so you can only do it a certain amount of time and he was trying to do kind of playable philosophy where he was demonstrating how vacuous these facebook games are mm. how stupid they are how shallow how how much they manipulate you know the player um but it turned out that cow clicker was really fun people really liked it you know and he didn't know what like how to respond to that so he he sort of helped um define this thing as a genre, this like super simple game where you're just clicking. Almost like a parody of what, yeah, like a comedy version of what a game, if, yeah. if, ga- if a game is considered a sort of high art form. Like Sid Meier, the guy who made Civilization, famously says, oh, a game is a series of interesting decisions. Like that's what a game is, right? And um, which is a great way to capture a certain a certain kind of simple but, you know, intuitive uh, measure of what we what we like in games. But these games are sort of the opposite of that in a way, right? There's something else. Um, a Cookie Clicker came along, was very famous. A Dark Room is another famous one. And um, I, got, I got really into one called Kitten's Game, which was by this uh, Russian hacker. And it was, it's often called the Dark Souls of Clicker games because it, it was really complicated. And so even though it had this very simple structure, uh, where you're just kick, you're just clicking in order to to do something, and it's that that number is going up, and then you're uh, there's more systems come in. Um, it, it got really complex and really deep and really interesting, and um, so I thought, okay, I will make myself one of these. How hard can it be? Um, and so I sat down, and then I immediately had the thought. I was I think I had just recently read Bostrom's book, uh, Superintelligence, and and I thought of this the thought experiment of the paperclip maximizer. And as soon as I thought of it, I was like, oh, this is perfect. Like, this, you can't, like, this has, this game has to exist. So, like, I have to make this game now because it's such a perfect meet uh, between these two things of uh, the theme and, and, and the action. Like so this. just to define for people who don't know what the uh, paperclip, paperclip maximizer means, um, it came from a thought experiment by uh, Nick Bostrom. As an and Yudkowsky, exo- I think. They, and, right, it was yeah. a mixture of them Yudkowsky both. Yudkowsky claims that that he came up with. Oh, yeah, it, so. one, one of them. Yeah, 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 I think actually, but yeah, you're right. It might yeah, be yeah, on Usenet, they were going back and forth. Yeah. But basically, as a sort of uh, example ad absurdum of a where you design something and you know an artificial intelligence that is so capable, incredibly intelligent and inca- and capable of doing stuff, but has a crap it gets originally programmed with a crappy goal right and just goes out of control and ends up tight you know wanting to turn everything 
uh, into the one thing that its goal was given, which happens to be paper clips in this right. case, as, this, as a fun yeah. example. The, the, the idea is that you that it's the orthogonality thesis, right. I think is what they call it. And it's the idea that uh, that intelligence, the, the capability to accomplish things in the world could be completely unrelated to what it is you're accomplishing. Right. So the you wisdom. could have, yeah, you yeah. could have supreme capability, but it could be attached to any arbitrary goal. Right. That was the idea. And, and um, which is, I think, interesting. Like it's, anyway, it was, it was obvious to me that this was a good fit for a clicker game. And, uh, and then once I started get, to get into it, I just had so much fun. Uh, and I really, uh, I thought of it as an opportunity to, like in a strange way, like this was my chance to make a content game. Right, because there's a lot. There's because not much content in it, but there is a lot of like. There's only a little bit of writing, but what writing there is, um, I really enjoyed thinking of this as a, a kind of science fiction. Like I'm a big. I grew up on science fiction. I love science fiction. I'd never really made a. I guess I'd made a few games that were had science fiction themes, but this to me, I wanted it to be like the kind of science fiction I love which is just overflowing with ideas. Like everything you encounter, you're like, oh, how would that work? And then, you, and then it like leads you to, um, you know, maybe do a little bit of research and discover, oh, there's this whole thing. So It has a kind of Douglas Adams vibe a little bit as well. So. It doesn't take yeah. itself too seriously, no. but it has these like nuggets of wisdom in there as well. And yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, so I'm glad that you liked it. And <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I, I, I was extremely happy to um, have made it I had no idea what, you know, other people would think of it at the time. I just put it out. How many people have played it? Do you know? Oh, millions. I don't, I don't, I kind of stopped keeping track, but um, there's a, yeah, there's just a free online. It's just in a browser, but then there's also a, an iPhone version that we made um, that, uh, yeah. So uh, lots, lots and lots of people. So I think before we dig into games themselves, we should actually try and define what is a game? Because I was thinking about it. I was like, well, what are the sort of common, what's the thread of commonality between all these different varieties of things we call games? You know, from video games to basketball to poker and so on. What's the thing they all have in common? Um, two words that popped up for me are sort of they, you have to do stuff mm. and they are fun. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, if there, is there a more concise definition that you work with? Well, I mean, the problem, that's a good definition. But the problem with that is a lot of games aren't fun, you know, <laughs> even the ones that are trying to be. But it doesn't make them not games, right? What's um, an example of one that's not fun? I don't know. Poker? Uh, <laughs> no, poker is wow. famously fun until it isn't. Right. And then yeah. it's just pure suffering. Uh, but you still play it and it's still a game, right? Yes. Um, and a lot of games are like that in a weird way. Uh, but um, it's... I think I think fun captures voluntary. I think that's the key thing is that there there are things that we do for their own sake. They're fun in that sense, and that we choose to do them, and we do them um, not in order to accomplish something else, but in order to experience them. And so I think fun is a good way of capturing that quality. I think that's necessary. There's something inherently valuable about the process itself. Yes. Yeah, you're doing the thing for the sake of doing the thing, the as opposed of to getting thing. to necessarily an exactly. Goal. So I think that's an essential aspect of games, and I think that's something that they share with other forms of with other art forms, with other forms of of cultural creativity and expression. So, uh, like like books and music and and painting and poetry and things like that. Um, that we do them for their own sake. Uh, 
uh, not for utilitarian reasons. What do you think the primal things are in us that are being triggered that makes us want to do them? Because you would think, um, you know, like, even if you look at the natural world, this, there are certain animals have the behavior of playing. And certainly humans, yep. we love to play. And yet you'd, you'd think that doesn't make any sense given, you know, out in the red and claw, red, was it tooth and red tooth right, and claw and world of claw, nature, yeah. nothing should want to spend any excess resources on doing anything other than like surviving and mating, reproducing, getting food, etc. Yeah. But actually it seems like a lot of life likes to play and certainly humans, we like to do that. So what's, what do you think is being triggered to make us want to do this and then like dedicate so much of our time into like, you know, why do we find games so fun? I think that it has to do with our desire to learn and to know and to expand our understanding of our environment and the world, uh, which is a pretty broad, you know, uh, desire. I think, I think that that also goes into the reason. I mean, that to a certain degree also explains why we like stories. I'm such a sucker. Like, if I see a trailer for a movie, I have to know what happens. Like, I have to know. Like, well, how are they going to get out of this? I, it's like it's so stupid, you know. Uh, but I really have this desire to understand. You know, okay, what happens next? What happens next? Uh, and I think that's just like a very important, powerful force that is, you know, defines us and, and drives us forward. And, and, uh, and I think games definitely tap into that. It's a, it's a cartoon version of being in the world, right? right? It's like, we are agents in the world. We're all at this weird cocktail party trying to like get stuff done and trying to like suss out where should I stand? What should I do? Like, how am I going to do this? Yeah, yeah. Where do I go to eat? How do I get a drink? Just like figuring out like, what are the, what are the properties of this unfolding system that I'm inside of, right? In some ways, like you, you couldn't have a more primal urge, mm. you know, than, than this. And games are about creating toy versions of that. Mm. And they create little ritualized, stylized systems that you enter into and then you're inside of them and you're trying to figure them out and you're trying to be good at them, you know, and, and you're trying to impress people at how quickly you can figure them out. And, uh, and you're trying to do all the other stuff that, that, you know, we do when we interact with art or interact with culture. And so it, it gets very, very messy. I mean, I, I think the real answer is there, there is no great definition. I mean, games are famously hard to define. Wittgenstein used games as the example of how impossible it is to get a real good, clear definition of anything. He's like, how are you ever going to, like, look at the word game, you know, like, it means all these different things. We use it to mean bridge, we use it to mean tennis, and all of these other things. And I think it's a great exercise to boil things down and try to understand, you know, in categorical terms, what are the properties. Uh, but I think the reality is that uh, it's just gloriously messy. What isn't a game? Oh, the thing that I like to point to are, uh, that are things that are not games, are things that are game-like in the world that people like, oh, politics is a game. Well, no, no, it isn't. Like, the, the, isn't the it? Well, politics is game-like, right? Um, I think when people say politics is a game, I agree with you that... So you can model it with game theory. Yeah, that you can model it and that you can under, that like using a lens of, of game theory or a lens of, of games is a great way of looking at what's happening in politics. But if you don't 
keep, there's got to be this bright line uh, uh, between, between the world and these things that we, that we make and interact with in, for their own sake, for fun or for beauty or for entertainment or for meaning. These things, the reason that they can be beautiful and interesting and meaningful is that they are outside of the world. Right. right. That's the, that's the leverage they have. You have to have this gap. They're like thought experiments. Yeah, basically. because it allows. It's like you 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 don't want to div- to dissolve that line. And so, if you say politics is a game, well, then what isn't? I see. It, it just it just it you've you lost. Need, you need the to draw. Category. You need to draw a border yeah. somewhere in order to. If you want to say, look, I want to highlight the game like qualities of politics, then I'm right there, and I think that's really valuable and important. But. To say, no, look, it really just is. Like, the Supreme Court just is a game, and it's like— So maybe it's just fun- it's a function of consequence, then. Yeah, precisely, because, the, because politics matters, and right. the Supreme Court matters, and, and, um, and so these things, uh, like, games don't matter in a way. Like, but the thing that makes them matter is that they don't matter. If you see what I'm saying? Like, yes. the thing that makes them capable of being, you know, profound and beautiful and transcendent is that they are— separate in a way that we they give us a, a, a perspective from which to look at the world in your book one of the main like the core thesis of the book is that games are an aesthetic form yeah. in other words they are an art form in fact you even say that games are the the defining art form of the 21st century it's yeah kind of like if painting was the art form of the 16th century yeah or mov- movies were clearly the the defining the art form of the 20th century uh, are games that for the 21st? Can they be that? Are they already that? Are they, should they be that? Like, that's really what the book is about. Could there be value, for example, like take something like politics, which is so, it feels like it has all the bad bits of games without any of the good bits. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's people being cutthroat and acting very zero-summy and optimizing for metrics that perhaps they shouldn't, you know, like, you know, having to optimize for a re-election at the cost of actually doing long-term good stuff. Right. How could we make it so that the best parts, you know, the beautiful parts of games, the fun parts of games are put into like a system like that and take away some of these crappier parts? I'm not sure you can. And I think that's maybe okay. Like, um, I think the real loop is maybe a little, is less tight. It's not about making the real world more game-like in all the ways that games are good. It's about digging into the ways that playing games deeply can give you a new perspective on the world, can just make you a smarter person, a wiser person, uh, a calmer person, a nicer person, uh, to make you um, have better judgments and, uh, and solve problems better and all the, all the things that, you know, I think that that's the, the right, like you, you don't, like you want a president who plays poker. Like you want the president to understand, like it used to be a thing that like American presidents were good at poker Mm. and many of them were. And it's like, yeah, that's a value I want. So I want the guy who's representing me at the table with Brezhnev, like hammering out like, uh, you know, a deal um, to have played poker and to be good at it. Because those are skills that I think are important to being a good president. Um, It's like decision-making under uncertainty, uh, the ability to control, to control your emotions, the ability to read other people. Like these are, these are great skills to have. But what you don't want is a president who thinks of being president like it's a game of poker, 
where, do you know what I mean? Like, like, right. like someone like Trump, I think is more like that, where it's like, it's all just a game, you know, it's like, this is all bullshit. None of this matters. Right. That's treating life like a game is, is, um, yeah, just pretending like the only thing that matters is accomplishing whatever your your local goal is. So actually, it comes down and, to the consequences. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. It's like yeah. it, you're you're so in in seeing everything as a game that you don't appreciate the actual real life negative consequences, particularly you know the negative externalities yeah. of that that mindset. The, the beauty of a game is that it's a little corner of the world that gets isolated, and you can zoom into it and see all the details, and you can zoom into it, and it's like oh. It just gets more interesting the more you zoom in. And it's like, oh, this thing looks like the simple corner of the world. How do you get a ball over a net? Like, I'm going to give you a stick with some, you know, a racket. And you can try to hit this ball over the net. Like, how interesting can that be? Well, that little corner of the world turns out to be infinitely interesting. Like, if you're, if you're Djokovic or Federer, you know, you just can keep zooming in and it keeps getting more and more interesting. Um, but it, it's important. Like, the thing that makes that work is that it's a little corner, that it's separated. Like, it's pulled out. It's like... This, you've isolated this little thing and treated it like its own separate little world uh, that you can then zoom into and explore. Um, but the real world is always open and infinite and overlapping and ambiguous in ways that you can't have in a game. Um, and then we can have fun modeling that, even like if you're like Baldur's Gate 3, right? It's like, let's see how closely we can take um, these game systems of, you know, lookup tables and dice rolls and map everything in a, in a little fictional world to that. Like everything is going to be mapped onto this system as if, it, as if it were a game. And that's fun, right? But it's, it doesn't, um, these things don't ultimately bleed into each other. There is this bright line, I think, that it is by pulling this little thing out and treating it like its own separate world is, uh, is the way you make it work. They're like an abstracted version of reality. In the same way that when you hear a sad song, it makes you sad, but it doesn't, it's not like the sadness of actually having your heart broken, right? It's, the, it's, this, it's this sweet sadness of, of experiencing heartbreak at one remove right. in a way. And it's, and it's the most beautiful thing in the world, right? It's amazing. Going back to this idea of play, why is it that some people, you know, thinking of me and Igor and a lot of my friends, you know, we have continued being children. You know, we're now in our late 30s. Mm. We, any opportunity we get, we will play a game. And I, as you know, discussed in the paperclips example, I very easily get my brain hijacked by games and I love it. But some people seem to sort of grow out of it in their teens. And to me, that seems very sad. Why is it, do you think, that some people have different sort of love for them, you know, or tolerance for them. And how can we encourage, how can we cultivate, and should we even cultivate, um, encouraging more people to like return to that sort of childhood play state? I think this is a quality that humans have in particular, this uh, extended childhood. Like most mammals don't have this thing where you'd like, you're helpless for a very, very long time after you're born. And then, years. and yeah. then you're like a, like a non, like you're like, you're like in this special state that is considered like, not like a fully fledged human in a way until you're like in your twenties or something. Right. You know, it's just absurd <laughs> how we, and it just keeps getting extended. I think partly because, like, as we get wealthier as a, as a species, as we get better, you know, like more nicely set up, um, 
we almost like want more and more of that. And it kind of makes sense. Like, um, yeah, I don't know why that is exactly, but um, if you think about the process of becoming is so valuable and important in a person's life, right? It's not, when we think about the, the most meaningful aspects of our lives, we don't just think about when we are executing the thing that we're good at, right? It's not just about accomplishing the goals that we've set ourselves. Um, it's also this process of figuring out what our goals should be, right? The thing that, that um, the utility maximizer fails to do, right? right? The, the, the real crime of the utility maximizer is in not changing, not being open to, to change, not being open to criticism, right? To and, put it in kind of popper, Karl Popper terms, right? Um, and it's like narrow-sightedness. It's, it's an yeah, ability it's, to see the whole. It's, well. it's being fixed. It's being, it's being stuck, right? And, um, and in some ways, being a grown-up is being stuck, right? Um, in some ways, right? Uh, whereas being a kid is this ongoing process of figuring things out, like who do I want to be and what, what kind of goals should I have? Uh, and so I think the good version of that, uh, the good version of that overall approach to life uh, is, is, that, is to think of it in terms of it be, being in a constant process of self-overcoming, a constant process of, of changing and adapting and being open to new things and new ideas and play and games, I, I think very much fit into that. Although I think other, I think other forms of culture also do too. I don't, I don't think it's unique to games. I think part of the process of being into music is also uh, that you are cultivating uh, your own taste in a way. It's not just about sitting and listening to the song that you like over and over again. It's being on this journey where you discover new things and oh, I'm not sure if I like that. And then you decide that you do, and then it's your favorite thing. And then that opens up some new you know, realm that you hadn't checked out before. What have been the most formative games for you? I think when I played... Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is an old Wait, Infocom game. That was game. a game? Yeah, it was an old Infocom game. An old text-based Infocom. Have you ever played any of these old text-based adventure games where it's just a, it's just a, a parser, it's a text parser, and you type in, uh, open a, the mailbox. Not that level, and no. And it says I mean, what happens. Yeah, so Infocom games. Uh, there was one called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I just loved it. I just, I thought it was like, that was, I think, the first one where I was like, oh, maybe this is a, thing I would want to do, you know what I mean? Like, um, and then I would say another big influence on me was Go, uh, discovering Go and having it be this like weird, slightly secret thing. Like I found this Go board and these Go stones my father-in-law had in his collection and he was like, I don't know how to play it. And I was like, I had to figure out how to play it. And I played it with a friend of mine and we kind of learned and played and and just this idea of having this thing, I knew a little bit about it, I knew, but I didn't know a ton about it. And sort of like, just, again, it's, it's, the, um, it's the contrast between how simple it looks 
and how complicated and deep it is that really appealed to me. Um, so that was a big one. Uh, playing, there's a, there's a video game called Wipeout, which is um, about futuristic uh, magnetic levitation vehicles racing through these mm -hmm. um, uh, cyber it, cities. Yeah. It's a beautiful game. That was the first video game I played where I'm like, oh, video games are starting to become more interesting as pop culture. Because video games have always had this problem of being kind of like stuck in this like weird kids culture thing and, and so they're kind of for kids, they're kind of for babies. And, and then they're like, oh no. Then the, even the ones that are like, like proudly not for babies, they're like, oh, you're just for adolescent boys. Like, okay, we're not for babies. You know, it's like the, all the Grand Theft Auto stuff. Like that's their whole thing. It's like, no elves, fuck elves, you know? And then it's like, yeah, but you're just, you're doing something that's the equivalent of elves because you saw Goodfellas and you fell in love with that. Right, that just happens to be your universe. Yeah, exactly. that's, there's no difference between that. And so um, they're, they're either kids culture or this kind of gross adolescent male power fantasy culture. Uh, and I mean, broadly speaking, those are like two of the, the very strong, you know, uh, kind of attractors in, in the space of video games. But then I played this, this game and it was, Wipeout was so beautiful. It was like also during the height of rave culture. And it was like a soundtrack of amazing bands like Chemical Brothers and Left Field and all these incredible like techno bangers. And you're in this like incredibly beautiful um, almost kind of abstract kind of like urban landscape, like sailing around on these. Uh, and I was like, oh, this, this is, this feels like an album. You know what I mean? Like that is like, for the first time I felt like, oh, this is a video games are like albums, you know? And so that was a huge impact on me uh, and really made me want, like, that's the kind of stuff I want to make. I want to make like smart, interesting, cool pop culture that isn't corny, you know? And, um, and so uh, and then poker was, I, I think I, um, I don't know what, cause I played poker a lot, but then at a certain point I realized, I think it was in a, even in a bookstore maybe. And I saw that there are all these books. It was probably like Sklansky, those early Sklansky books. Like and, super um, system. Super system. And I was like, oh wait, like poker is like chess. People could study poker and get good at it. Like, wait, I, really? You didn't? I kind of didn't realize that. Cause I had what? like- I had played poker just casually as one does. And this is before the boom, you know? Um, and I thought it was just a gambling game and I really had never thought about it, you know? I'd really never thought about, uh, it, was, it seemed closer to bingo, you know? It's like, oh, you sit around and whoever gets the better hand How wins. Dare you, know? you. I know, right? So, <laughs> but that appealed to me, like the discovery that it was like, oh, I, again, I love this, this juxtaposition between the way that something looks right. and, and I think for most people, they, to them, it still is like, it looks like just a game where you wait until you have the best hand and then win and then occasionally you bluff or whatever. But the idea that it has all of these like technical things and this kind of strategic uh, approach that you can study and get good at, that just like, I loved it. So I got very deep into that and, uh, and that had a huge influence on me because it just changes your way of seeing the world. Like it's amazing how much room there is to change your fundamental like tools for 
understanding the world. Like I was a full-on grown-up and it kind of had never occurred to me to think of the world probabilistically, right, in this way. I was just like every, most people, you think deterministically and cause and effect. And then it's like, and if you're wrong something, about something, yeah. you were just wrong. Something either is or isn't. It yeah. did or it didn't happen, therefore yeah. it's 50%. Like and you, that, some people literally go around the world thinking that's how probability yeah, works. You're just like, what? You, no. You, you parked in the illegal space and you got a ticket. And it's how simple is that? And it's like, well, no, there was like some chance that you would get the ticket. Right. And in some cases, you should park in the space where you might get the ticket. And because there's this thing called expected value and it's like that is such a, a fundamental change in how to look at the at the world and it really delighted me like this idea that that your your beliefs could be could could like level up you know that you could become much better at looking at the world and interpreting it and thinking about it of all the games i've played poker is by far the one it has the most diverse range of skills that it challenges people on and it maps clean those skills map most you know they they transfer the best to almost every facet of life more than any other game is that a mark of the game's complexity or is it because it has just the right like sweet spot between luck and skill or what what is it there's a whole set of of good qualities that are associated with gambling in general right the um uh, the ability to to control your emotions, the ability to think probabilistically, uh, the ability to be uh, gracious in defeat, um, to to be trustworthy. Like you can't exist as a gambler unless you have uh, a certain set of of kind of personality traits that that are admirable, mm. right? That, that you're that you're trustworthy. That you that you believe in fairness. Um, and, and, and there's a whole, you know, there's a whole set of things that I think, uh, that if you, if you're a good gambler, right, that they bring out the illicit, these good, these good qualities, uh, then they're all of the good qualities of, of being like a strategy game, someone good at go or chess, uh, which is this ability to focus and to, to calculate and to have good heuristics and to have a desire to seek out, the most difficult problems and to improve by, by losing over and over again. You know what I mean? Like, like the, the kind of discipline to, to, to have an appetite for, for the kind of endless losses that you need to get good at any strategy game. Um, and as well as just like a good keen mind for calculating and, and, uh, and for doing all that stuff. And, and poker brings these things together, right? So it's a weird mix um, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the reasons that, yeah, that poker has this, this special quality and you see, like, it's interesting that you, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. You, you see people go from like Starcraft into poker, Magic the Gathering into poker. I think it's partly it's a, just a financial thing, right? It's partly that f- poker is more lucrative. Right. If you than, want to be a professional games player, yeah. that's one of the better ways. Yeah. Like if, if you're like a- And you don't a, have to be that good to sometimes win, exactly. win a big like tournament. Exactly. Like if you're a Yu-Gi-Oh player uh, who's making like $1,000 a year and <laughs> being an expert at, at that game, then you're like, well, wait a minute. I should be spending this much effort and making, you know, 10 times that much. Mm. Uh, so it's partly just, yeah, the incentives of- but I think it's also there is something richer about the social aspects of poker. The fact that 
one of the things you do in poker is uh, is this deeply social skill of like knowing who you're at the table with and understand and extrapolating from their behavior to kind of trying to reverse engineer what their strategy is. You're trying to reverse engineer what their what their model, what their model of the world is by looking at their behavior. That is a really deep and interesting and fun problem, right? In fact, it's probably the most deep and interesting fun problem in poker. Like the problem of playing GTO poker is fine. To, but, defi- to define that, that's game theory optimal, which yeah. means uh, basically playing a style of poker which cannot be exploited by anyone. There is no yeah. strategy your opponent can do to improve upon their own strategy. If you're both, if you're both playing... Um, both playing game theory optimal. Right. Uh, it's got a national Unexploitable, yeah, yeah. But in some ways, that's just, that's just a big math problem. And if you look even at the origins of game theory, um, John von Neumann, like, he was, the reason he was studying poker in the first place is because it wasn't just a math problem. Like, he looked at chess, and he's like, that's not a game. That's just, that's just a math equation. Like, you, mm. it's like a big, hard math equation. You can figure it out. But like, does poker, it, now that's it's deterministic and... Yeah, because in poker, it is this recursive process right. of I'm trying to figure you out, and you're trying to figure me out at the same time. And I'm, the way that I can figure you out is by looking at your behavior uh, and vice versa. But your behavior are also the moves in the game. Right, so they have this double meaning, right? It's like, which I, I think is beautiful, right? I think Bridge has this too. I think Bridge is, is also beautiful for this reason, that, that the, the thing you're trying to communicate with your partner, but the only way you can communicate is through moves in the game. So I'm trying to win the game, but I'm also trying to like communicate, I'm trying to win the game by communicating something to you by making moves. So when we're in the bidding process, like I'm bidding and that has both, uh, I'm committing to a certain move in the game and I'm also trying to communicate something to you, my partner. And poker is like an adversarial version of this. Like I'm trying to win this hand. I'm trying to make the optimal thing in this hand. But I also am trying to confuse you. I don't want you to know what my what my strategy is. You know, I don't want you to have a perfect read on me. Um, and so that is so rich and such an interesting problem and it's so recursive and and infinitely complicated that um, I think that's one of the things that makes poker really special. Yeah. So as a game designer, what do you do like as a sort of starting process? Does it is it like like a friend of mine who's a, a musician an artist? Um, she says that before she starts like writing a song or an album, she often has like literally a visual aesthetic in her mind. Mm. She makes almost like the cover art of her album first, and then the music comes. Is that what happens with you as a game designer? Do you have like a like a kind of visual in mind, or do you have a, like a core principle, or is it much more like logical and on the drawing board? How does it work? I definitely have a similar thing. Like I sort of, when I have an idea for a game, I kind of like squint and try to see it. I'm like, okay. And I'm trying to look. I'm trying to look at the finished thing. I'm trying to look into the future and see the finished thing. But I think the reality is that we don't know and we can't know um, because that's what creativity means, right? Creativity by its nature, like it, by, by definition, is the thing that can't be predicted. Mm. And I think games can start in terms of inspiration. They can start from anywhere. Like I often start with a mechanic. Like I'm, I'm kind of a... Uh, uh, 
a game designer who likes interesting mechanics, like rules, the way the way rules interact. In it. So I might say, oh, what's a oh, what's a reverse auction? Like, is there like could you have a reverse auction where the where the the lowest bid wins or something? What about an auction where I'm bidding for you? Okay, let's do an auction where I bid for you, you bid for the person to your left, like things like that, right? You just like oh, like how would that play out? And then you start to extrapolate. Uh, so that's one approach. Or I think where most people start is you just like, I want to make a slight variation on this game that I love, <laughs> right? Like Minecraft was based on a game called Infiniminer by this brilliant uh, game designer, Zachtronics. And Marcus Pershon, who um, was just a fan of, of Infiniminer and wanted to take it in a different direction. He's like, oh, I think it should be more like this. And so, yeah, so Notch just took it and like tweaked a couple things and uh, ended up with, uh, with Minecraft. So yeah, I think most games start as slight variations of existing games. I wonder what the first ever game was. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so anthropologically, it's things like the royal game of Ur. You know, this is this old, old kind of, um, they're all like um, backgammon style uh, race games, basically. The oldest games First that people to get their things to hear. Yeah, or, they're like the oldest things that we've ever found. I mean, we're only going to find the things where there was a physical artifact, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there must have been one. plenty of games before I'm that. I'm sure, like in like caves or something, it, like children were probably like. I mean, technically, who can throw the rock closest Absolutely. to the wall? Absolutely. I mean, imagine a being a kid in cave people. Nothing times. to do. Of course, you're running around throwing <laughs> rocks at stuff. And is that not a game? Of course, it's a game. Yeah. Um, and I think there was also a lot of overlap between religious rituals and games. I think um, a, lot of these, a lot of these early uh, games that they found, uh, they have like lots of traces of, of being a, a thing that you would engage with like, like, a, religious, uh, like, like a religious ceremony. Um, and they would be about fate. You can imagine why. Like rolling, like when dice were discovered, I think they were probably as much about divination and telling mm. the future and as they were about, and then, then there's this like weird thing where all of a sudden it's like, well, this isn't great at telling the future, but it's like a really entertaining activity. And also um, you can get good at it and uh, maybe, you know, make a little drachma you know what i'm saying like <laughs> you know so, so actually a, it was probably gambling was yeah, exactly so thing. there's like a lot of like overlap between religion and gambling i think in the very early prehistory of of games it all comes back to gambling yeah <laughs> you in in your book you you describe what makes making games hard is that it that it's everything that's hard about building a bridge combined with everything that's hard about composing an opera yeah can you elaborate on that a bit? So games are like engineering problems. Like even board games are engineering problems. Because even, even if you're not making software, like you're making a complex system of rules that can have all of these fail, fail states, you know, <laughs> that could just like not go. Like most right. games, if you sit down to like figure out a game, it just doesn't go, right? And, and it just fails to go like an engine. It just doesn't take right? You have to have kind of like, you have to tweak the, the, the rules and the affordances and the incentives and, and, and make to make a thing that actually uh, even just works as well as tic-tac-toe, right? So it's an engineering problem. Um, but at the same time, the thing that you're trying to make, it has all the irreducible qualities of like a hat, 
You know, what makes a nice hat, right? Like, it's not just an engineering problem. Like, like men in America used to wear hats. We all just wore hats. Like, it was a thing. And then at a certain point, they, they just stopped. Like, what's going on there? Like, that, that's like, what is it? It has all of these circular and recursive properties of being culture, right? Where the thing has a meaning that is kind of irreducible to it's, you can't just explain why certain thing, like a certain combination of notes makes your heart skip a beat. And then most combinations of notes don't. That is the question of art and expression and creativity. Like there's certain, um, there's certain things that, uh, will never be reducible to a formula, partly because there is this adversarial relationship between the creator and the audience and between the creator and, and themselves because I'm trying to make something new because I'm bored. Like, I don't want to play Monopoly again. I want to make something new, right? Um, and if, 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 this, if this thing I was doing, like making a game, was reducible to a formula in the way that engineering problems are. Like I can, like engineering problems don't have this extra quality of operatic, you know, difficulty because it can be reduced to formula. I can follow a formula and produce, you know, like produce uh, some chemical thing out of some other chemical thing. I don't know how chemistry works, but, um, but I can't do that with a game because just like with a movie or with a song, I'm trying to avoid this thing of being boring, predictable, corny, mid, you know, like right. dull. Like, and if you go to a movie and it's formulaic and you can see the formula, you can see, you know, you know, exactly. you know that know, she's going to end up with the guy. It's going to be a car crash. Yeah. A guy, oh, they're having this conversation in front of a busy street. Like, countdown to him stepping off the curb and getting hit by the car. Three, two, one, and there's the car, right? It's like, well, it worked in this other movie. Yeah, okay, well, too bad your movie sucks like and there's no but that that same bit might work in a different way right with just the right bit of knowingness or or like you think it's going to happen and then they play with that expectation it's the way, the way jump scares work in horror movies like they keep having to like play off your expectations of where the jump scare is going to be and then your expectations of where your expectations are and it's like poker it's like this recursive process it pushes us further and further into the unknown, away from the formula. So is it the case that with games, you really, audiences will reward you the more unpredictable your game is? No. Uh, they, <laughs> it's just purely unknowable. Sometimes they do. Right. Sometimes they want more of the same. Yeah. And they'll reward you for cranking out a carbon copy of what you've done. Sometimes they want something different and they didn't tell you and you, but the thing, sometimes you do something different and they don't like the thing that you did that's different. Um, and then sometimes you get there, but it's, you just never know beforehand when you're going to get there. When you get there, you do something new and there are people there who are like, yeah, I wanted this. I didn't know I wanted it, but now I know I want it. And that's like, you're like, oh, thank God. You know, how, how it, many, what's, do you think the ratio of of games that kind of make it Ooh. versus ones that just end up in the like graveyard of I love ideas. This question. I love this question because I think the answer is maybe that that is incalculable. I think it's maybe uncomputable uh, because there are an infinite number of games. And so imagine this huge infinite like set of all possible games, right? Okay. And 
within that, an infinite number of those are great, truly great, world-conquering masterpieces, the kinds of games that you love for your whole life and they're brilliant. Like, there's an infinite number of those within there. But it's, it's also the ratio of those to the other ones is also infinitely small. <laughs> so the, 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 the infinite size of all the other games that aren't beautiful and meaningful and fun to like, it's like, so it's just, it's weird because sometimes it seems so easy. Sometimes it's like, it's like, I don't know, let's try this. And then you're like, whoa, that was really fun. And then you've like made a game. You can make a great game in an afternoon. Like Minecraft was made in a weekend, right? right. It's like, oh, I bet if I stuck, if I took this Infiniminer game and stuck this other thing in it or tweaked it a little bit, it's like, you can get there like instantaneously. And so, uh, and that's delightful. So when at, at the NYU Game Center, we we often are just like, look, the first thing to to do is like start making games. <laughs> just start now, like today, right now. Because part of it is that first of all, you never know, and you should just be make constantly making things and learning by doing. Uh, but also, part of it is if you make a small game quickly and it works, then in your head you get over that weird hurdle of thinking, oh, I, I guess game design is this thing that requires like years of hard work. And then at the end, you'll have something good. It's like, no, it requires five minutes of having, of trying something and getting lucky, but also having good taste and good instincts. And then, then there's as much work as you want to pour into it. Like anything else, then it becomes like incredibly challenging to go deep. But um but yeah, it's a real, it's a, it's a paradox, I think, this question of like how many games are good. It's also, the, re the reality is that goodness is not a quality that is inherent in a thing. Goodness is a quality that, it's an emergent quality. Like, like as good as Go is, as beautiful as Go is, I think a lot of that beauty is that we've been playing it for thousands of years, right? Like, we've excavated the beauty out of Go. Do you think there's, like, some kind of fundamental truth emerging, that there maybe there are these, like, little natural convergent points within idea space? You know, the fact that Go has persisted for thousands of years and presumably yeah. variants of it that didn't, do you think that's... What, what yes. is it? What's the X factor that it has? I think there I think there are certain qualities uh of formal systems that make them more or less uh capable of uh of absorbing of being sites to 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 excavate beauty right of being of being places that we agree to kind of meet and coordinate our actions and then discover what what is there and and um I think it has to do with uh certain kinds of predictability like this this property of being semi-predictable mm. uh the property of being semi-predictable is a way of leveraging human agency um i think of it like like a, a golf club is a simple machine right it's a kind of wedge let's say um that magnifies uh the the player's actions and so i can hit this ball and send it a really far away it's a simple machine for taking that my my action and and amplifying it but golf itself is a simple machine for amplifying choice and action 
for taking like slight differences in how I hit the ball and magnifying their consequences in this larger system of evaluating what I'm trying to do, you know? And so that property of like certain combinations of rules amplify your agency, amplify your, uh, your ability to, uh, to, to solve problems, to, to explore a system, to understand it, to extrapolate from a set of rules to the overall behavior of a system, um, to, to dig deep into like little details that end up like having large consequences. So I think some, some systems, some combinations of rules have that property. And when they do, they, they unfold like a flower or like a fire. It's like when you're trying to start a fire and all of a sudden you get the right combination of heat and then it just goes. And then it's like self-sustaining. And it like unlocks a new sort of treasure trove of, of, you know, your, your tech tree opens up and you've now got a bunch of stuff to go. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the sort of concept of audience capture, you know, like the video game industry now is roughly 10 times the size of the movie industry. It's just, as you say, it's games are now the art form of the 21st century. And I noticed there was some, it seems like the, the, the game design community is split somewhat about whether video games are actually a good thing or not. <laughs> and there seem to be like, feel like purists who are like, they're not, you know, they're just doing things for commercial interests. They're trying to just like, make the next big blockbuster, you know, kind of like the same way you see certain like aspects of Hollywood, it feels like. It's like, oh, we've got another superhero movie. Like they're just doing, they're like pounding out the fourth version of, I don't know, the Avengers or whatever for like, because it, it you know, it's, it's, it's tried and tested and they know that it makes, audiences are going to spend money on, uh, on going to see that movie. Is, you know, what, what do you, what's your feeling about that? Like, is it a, is it a legitimate concern? Have you noticed yourself like ever, like, being sucked into optimizing for what you think will actually appease audiences or is it something you actively resist? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's an important dynamic. Like you can't have a healthy cultural form without, without an audience, without some kind of well-informed audience who is pushing the creators, right? There, there has to be this dialogue, I think, between the people making the stuff and the people consuming it um and it has to be a kind of uh positive adversarial relationship it has to be like a positive sum adversarial relationship uh you need to have an audience that is going to be putting pressure on you to innovate and who's going to be literate enough to like appreciate what the things that you appreciate, that you're trying to do. If you're a creator and you're trying to do something, you want an audience that is a, like on, on the same wavelength, you know, heading in the, the same kind of direction. Um, and then, and then, then you have this like think, rich push and pull. Uh, I love the image of Bob Dylan going electric. To me, there's always something beautiful about this moment. He had such a huge folk fan base and the folk fan base was just these purists they hated rock music they hated amplified guitars and then 
Um, and Bob Dylan just showed up at these folk festivals with this electric band playing music. I didn't that he know this knew, story. Yeah, he knew they were going to hate, and they hated it. <laughs> and they were just like, and to me, it's like, uh, it's just a, such a beautiful scene of the arrogance of showing up at a place and knowing that this is where I'm going, and I, don't, and I do not care. Right. Um, and in fact, I'm feeding off of this, you know. Um, but I, I think, yeah, if you're in a position where you are making something for somebody else that you think, oh, this is, I'm going to satisfy this set of preferences in this audience because I want to make money on Steam or I want to make a hit game or a mobile game that has a high ARPU or whatever. Like, like that just, yeah, you can do that and, 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 and it'll work for a while. Um, but that's just like, you're not, that, that, that's not really why you're in this, right? You're in this to be in like, uh, just out ahead of the audience, but just slightly, um, where you're trying to figure out stuff that can work and make money. Like you want an audience, like you don't want to make a thing and be like, oh, I'm in an ivory tower and this is just for me and my friends. But that's legitimate, actually. I mean, people can do that and... Um, and sometimes you can make a great game that way, you know? Uh, but I think where true greatness comes is, is when you get the, yeah, the, the back and forth, the dialectic of wanting to be successful, wanting to be rich and famous, you know, definitely wanting to have a hit. Um, but also being, you being the your unique person that that is sees the world in a way that no one else on the planet does and wanting to do something that reflects that and do something that is that is new that no one's done before and have people admire you for it and be like wow i didn't i wouldn't have thought of that we've talked a lot now about the beauty of games the upside of games uh, i would like to talk a bit about the dark side mm. of them um, I mean, very mild example, but somewhat funny example for me at least. I got so addicted to chess, um, I've had to delete it from my phone. Mm. You know, it got to a point where, and to be clear, I'm not good at chess as well. This is how, how bad the addiction was. I don't want to actually learn and get any better. It's just something about, it, it's like a form of escapism. Like mm. My br brain seems to converge upon. It's like I can grab my phone and I can just play some like bullet games. You know, I went from playing 10-minute games to five minutes to three minutes to one minute. Mm. So I'm not thinking. I'm not getting any better. It's just like a rat clicking, you know, the heroin button yeah. or something. Um, and so, you know, I, I managed to like delete the app for a while. Uh, unfortunately, I've fallen back off the wagon. I have it currently back on my phone. Eagle's telling me it has to go by next week. Anyway, so... I've had a little taste of what it's like. You know, I think I have the brain chemistry for it. And, you know, I, I Googled game addiction before this, and like, there's loads of websites now of, of like with all these scary stats about like 3% um, of adults have official, you know, have a formal game addiction, 8.5% of children, 5% uh, of gamers play more than 20 hours a week, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the World Health Organization in 2019 recognized it as officially. Um, a, as a disease, a mental health condition called gaming disorder. What's your take on this? Do you think this is a bit overblown? Because uh, I, I truly don't know whether it's actually as bad as they're making it out to be. It's just, yeah, it's a hard problem. I mean, you think if you look at the chess example, uh, yeah, chess is famously like this. I forget who it was that said, oh, if you want, if you want to kill 
a promising young man, don't use poison or a knife. Just teach him to play chess. <laughs> You'll never have to worry about him again, right? He'll be out of the way, right? On the other hand, like, it seems like a, in, like a, a life devoted to playing chess and playing it well and getting really good um, seems like a good life right? As good as, as any, right? If you, if you enjoy it. Well, it depends on the opportunity cost, right? And from the perspective, you know, if that person, some, you know, a, a Magnus Carlsen style brain, yeah. presumably would have been very good at anything it puts itself to. Yeah. But we don't look at Magnus Carlsen and think, oh, what a shame. No. What a shame. If only he had what, gone into marketing or like managed a hedge fund. Could have gone into fundamental physics. Something like that. Oh, God, please. No, no more <laughs> fundamental physicists. <laughs> We've got enough. Um, I think it's irresol- It's another like uncomputable problem, which is, okay. you know, it's what makes art great, right? Mm. Is that it's full of these. Um, the, it's purely a matter of, of how. Right? It's not a matter of what. It's a matter of how. Like, um, there's a way to, to integrate chess or any addictive game into your life in such a way that it is, uh, that you will not regret it afterwards, that you'll think, yes, I, I lived a good life and it was meaningful and it was rich and this, and this activity added to it and I'm happy about it. And it just continues to unfold with new interesting problems to solve and new opportunities to self-improve and be creative. And, um, or it can be like, oh God, the sick feeling in your stomach, or you, you know you've just wasted six hours and you did it because you just are tired of the world and you want it mm. to go away and you want to go into that place where your mind gets replaced with this other thing, the chess mind, right? I think of it as getting in touch with your shark mind. You know how sharks always have to be moving? Mm. Like sometimes when you're playing a game, you're just like, uh, you're just like getting in touch with this like weird primal version of yourself that, and it's just yeah, it's like lizard brain basically, it, right? It's like, yeah. That's what I was saying. I'm not yeah. thinking when I'm in in the like dark zone of chess. Yeah. I'm not thinking. I'm just it's, you're just, it's a pure escape. You're being. I've read something horrific. You know, in, in the kind of research and work I do, it's a lot of like existential risk stuff and yeah. scary things. And it's just sometimes I find myself going to chess. Yeah, it's, but, the, it, it's, a, it's the opposite of thinking in a way. You're repla- yeah. you like, instead of thought, because at a certain point, thought can become burdensome and you want it to go away. And so this thing, you can put this thing in your head, which just unfolds and fills your head until there's no room for you left in your head. And yes. there's something beautiful about that. It's like meditation, but it's also dark. It'll just destroy people. Like the reason that quote about chess exists is because chess just destroyed people's lives. Just as, as, as bad as 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 uh, uh, slot machines can destroy a person's life, but slot machines can be fun and interesting and and good for many people. Slot machines are just an, a nice ingredient in yeah, their they life. Do once a year when they yeah, pass through Vegas they, or something. Or, yeah, know, it's not inherent in the object itself or in the system or in the game itself. It's inherent in the context. Right. It's the things that come before and after it that matter. It's the way it's integrated into your life. The, the really hard problem is that you can't pull those things apart. You can't have the good stuff and, not, and leave the other stuff behind. Like, like, if I think about my, the thing that I, my relationship to poker is so complex, right? Like of all the games I've ever played, it was the only one that, where there were times when I felt like I was sticking my face into a plastic bag full of broken glass <laughs> and <laughs> tightening that bag around my neck 
and then jumping into a lake. You know? yep. Yeah, right? And it's like, but if you told me, oh, would would you wish that you would never have that experience? I'd be like, no. Nah. It does feel like there's some subset, you know, certain companies, I'm sure there are certain game design companies which are just like going all in on maximizing addictiveness of yeah, their games. Yeah, but those games suck. And they are they are sort of addictive, like these mobile games that are just about. But it's right, like, like, like so, what about like Candy Crush? Would you put that in that category? I think Candy Crush is actually a decent game. Um, I don't play it myself, but uh, but I think any mobile game that is in the kind of modern mode of trying to maximize for engagement is right. has this problem. And they're like advertising. They 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 particularly if like frequency of players correlates with their revenue as opposed to just like exactly. a one-time where download. They're, they're just trying to yeah. maximize time on device, yes. just like slot machine designers. I'm just thinking of like any like practical metric that could be devised to sort of figure out this, you know, to, to evaluate whether a game is going into that category. And I think what it is, is like the function of learning something new over time. If it yeah. plateaus out, but yeah. somehow people keep playing it. Now you've fallen into like shitty addictive slot machine territory. And if yeah, I mean, I think it's I, I think this the safest way is to is self reflection, and I think self reflection is also the path that I am trying to encourage people to to follow. Like in part of this book, I don't know if I say it explicitly in this book, but one of one of the things I'm hoping uh, that this book does is get people to just like slightly tweak the way they, they interact with games to be a little bit more conscious of, of their choices and, and, and to reflect on their own experience. I think that's the way to do it. You, don't, you can't look at a game and point at it and say, well, this doesn't have the qualities that a good game has. You have to play a game and then afterwards think, okay, well, what, what was going on? In, in like, like I was enthralled uh, and, but do I feel good about that? Like, do I want to do it again? Or do I feel a little sick to my stomach? Like I've just been conned, you know? And we know, you know, in your heart of hearts afterwards. And, and um, it's funny, I had, I once had a student who was complaining to me about his girlfriend and he's like, um, he's like, oh, well, you know, she sees that I'm addicted to League of Legends. I'm playing League of Legends all the time. I mean, she doesn't understand that really what I'm doing when I'm playing League of Legends is like I'm, I'm doing this collaborative problem solving, this really deep, interesting thing. And I'm also getting better over time. I'm studying this really deep, hard problem and getting better. And he was saying to me all the things he knew I would like. Like he was like rehearsing this excuse to his girlfriend by like trying to like explain his League of Legends habit using the, all of the kind of ideas and concepts yes. that he knows I would like. And I was just thinking, it's like, okay, don't fool yourself. Like, like you and your girlfriend should work this out separately, but like you're trying to fool me and you're trying to fool yourself. Like instead of that, just be honest. Like it's not it's okay for a game to be self-medication. Sometimes right. we need a little medicine. It's okay. It's okay for, for something to like, be, to, 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 to like be a thing you use to, to like wrap yourself in, this Markov blanket, you know, that protects you from the world, you know. It's okay for you to have a little bit of that in your life. Um, just don't kid yourself that you're on this journey, you know, that you're on this journey of self-overcoming and where you have this like rich, deep experience with this game. It's like, just be honest with what your experience actually was. And if it, and if you actually think like your girlfriend does that you're spending a little too much time doing it, 
and that it's not really making you a better, more interesting person, you're not really enjoying it on this, on this level, then that's, pay attention to that, right? That's, that's signal. Why do you think there are, you know, we had Gamergate and all these other sort of controversies where it seems like some portion of gamer culture at least cultivates this kind of toxicity, not only in terms of um, sheer behavior, but it almost seems like it cultivates a toxic, toxic competitiveness. Like you hear someone said like, oh, you, I don't really play these online games where you're like speaking live to people that much, but I've heard that, I mean, I'm not easily shocked, but some of the stuff I've heard relayed is like so shocking. Yeah. A, are there certain types of games that typically cultivate that? Um, is it like something to do with like certain games appeal more to masculine than feminine energy? Um, and like, is it, a, okay, is there a solution to it? And do you think it's actually a problem that needs to be addressed? In some ways, it is the problem of civilization, right? How do we, how do we improve the ways in which we interact right. and make better kind of collective decisions? And yeah, gamers as a community have not really uh, comported themselves well in this department. <laughs> like, uh, and I mean, it's complicated. It's, it's partly their roots in adolescent male culture of one-upsmanship and, and, and poking and insulting and shit-talking. And, um, you know, that's, that's just, that is what it is. It's a thing that exists. And, but it, it can, you know, at a certain point, video games were consciously marketed as boy toys. Like, this is a thing that isn't just organic. Like, it also is related to markets and 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 capitalism and stuff like that and so it became weirdly overdetermined at that point you know in the in the like 80s 70s and 80s that oh this is a thing for boys and if you look at like the aesthetic actually of those games typically it was like street fighter they're more classically aggressive games you know so there, there's that element i would very much like for for games to be a positive force for for culture and society and civilization overall. And I think, I think overall they, they are. Yeah, so you talk about in um, the final chapter of your book about this concept of systems literacy. Yeah. Which I think is really beautiful because you're saying literacy doesn't have to be just about reading. Um, there are other forms of literacy that we, we can develop. You know, now 85% of the world fortunately can read. Yeah. And we're now getting to a point where there's this concept of just as people can learn to read, books, they can learn to read systems mm. and understand how systems work and sort of this, uh, you know, hold many concurrent uh, hypotheses concurrently in their head, um, understand incentive structures, that kind of thing. And again, you, you sort of describe it as literature was to, um, to books and helping people become more um, you know, better literacy, yeah. written literacy. Games can be to improving systems literacy. Yes. And you know, from, as you, as you said, part of this, one of my goals with this podcast is to figure out ways where we can like better navigate these incredibly complicated, complex problems. Um, you know, how do we solve the mutually assured destruction, you know, nuclear wars, permanent perpetual shadow that we live under? Yeah. Um, how do we uh, fix these Moloch problems, as I call them, where, yeah. you know, these, 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 everyone's incentivized for the short term and if everyone ends up doing it, it creates long-term destruction. Have you thought about building a game that can like help people think about these concepts better? And where would you go about starting? 
Do that. Um, all of my games help people feel uh, think about this stuff better. Uh, no, um, yeah, it is. I'm I'm fascinated by this question, and uh, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, David Chapman, who's uh, who has this website called Meaningness, and um, and is someone who writes brilliantly about this idea of meta rationality, um, and he's very uh, inspired by. Uh, there's a psychologist by the name of Keegan who has these stages, like different stages that you go through and um, as uh, stages of development as a human. And, but in a way, societies go through them as, as well. Um, and when you start out, you're like just purely like instinctual. And then at a certain point, you become just really ego driven. And then at a certain point, you're very much a social creature. You're, you're motivated by your social relationships and that's sort of everything. And then beyond that, there's a kind of systemic, like all of a sudden you realize, oh no, I am not just my relationships with other people. I am, I'm, I'm part of a system of commitments. Like I have projects and ideas that I'm committed to. And that's really what informs me. Um, and it sort of roughly corresponds to the kind of rational turn where you start to look, you start to think of the world more analytically and you can, oh, I can break things down and see them as a system. You can break things down to the parts and see how they interact and stuff. Um, and, but then there's a stage beyond that, right? Which is, oh, okay, I'm not defined by these systems that I'm inside of, these, these my roles and my projects and my commitments. I can move between them, right? I am something else, right? That there's an even higher stage, right? So it's like and, having different, yeah, like... Being rational is having a sort of model for the world. Yeah. And meta-rationality is... Is understanding that there are different models. Uh, that, and yeah, mo- you models of thinking them. even. Whole different models of interacting and, and thinking and, right. and, and perceiving the world. Um, and there isn't one global universal one, whether, whether, you, whether it's Christianity or rationality or... or um, you know, liberal, you know, neoliberalism or whatever. Um, there isn't a single system that uh, that is global and universal and answers all the questions and and then doesn't um, break down into inconsistency at some point. Uh, and but and this kind of goes back a little bit to why gamers often are kind of retrograde, you know, troglodytes in a, in a way. Because I think one of the things that happens when you're in this stage, when you're in the kind of systemic stage or the rational stage, is that you realize this limitation. You realize that every system is just a self-perpetuating thing, that, none, they're, that they are competing with each other and there's no perspective, there's no systemic perspective from which to stand and evaluate the difference between them. And to say, oh, for, from this global system, I can tell you that this system is right and this system is wrong. It's like all systems have this limitation of being finite. And, and, um, and one of the things that can happen when you realize that, uh, you can become a nihilist. You go, oh, nothing matters. It's all mm. bullshit. Everything's bullshit. Well, the Marxists think it's like this and capitalists think it's like this. And it's really, they're both... There's just self-perpetuating, there's systems of ideology that like, that people are trapped inside of. And so nothing matters, right? There is, you know, um, or you can become a relativist, which is like the other end of the spectrum, but it's a similar thing. It's like, oh, well, your truth is your truth. And, you know, this is fine for you. And that world is fine for you. And everyone has their own world and we're all fine inside of our own perspective. Right, and that doesn't work because then there's no yeah, collaboration. Yeah, neither one can't. of them, yeah, neither so one of them actually, actually works because they're both kind of self-defeating in a way. 
Um, the reality is that we do manage to live in the world and and do good things and think and solve problems, even though the systems that we're applying and and inside of are limited in this way, and and none of them are universal and absolute. It's okay; they still work. They just work in in the way that they work, and you have to recognize that you're outside of them and moving between them. Um, but it's a really hard thing to do, and falling into this kind of nihilistic. Uh, thing is very typical of like the Gamergate mentality. It's like, oh, it's all bullshit. Did you ever struggle with that yourself? Mm, I, I don't think so, but it's hard to know. Like maybe I am struggling with it now. And like, it's so hard to have a good uh, picture of that. But, you know, I've always just um, been trying to stay ahead. I don't know. I, I read... Um, I read Godel Escher Bach when I was a very young person. I was like 14. It's like the perfect age to read Godel Escher Bach, this amazing book. And uh, which in some ways kind of laid the foundation of, of how I think about this stuff. In Godel Escher Bach, of course, it's sort of like, well, what are the roots of being a person? What does it mean to, 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 be, to be conscious? Like this is one of the great books about artificial intelligence um, and what it means. And um, so I think I've always had this slightly outsider, maybe very kind of arrogant in a way, you know, kind of like thought of like wanting to not be caught, wanting to not be trapped in, in any particular uh, net. Where do you see the future of game design now that we're in the era of generative AI? And I mean, by generative, I mean, not just like visually, but it seems like yeah. we're just being able to use AI to come up with everything. I don't. I don't know. I want to know so bad. I want to know. Um, I've spent the last like five or six years thinking about this. I just, I like, I saw it coming and I was like, oh, this is, and I was like, I want to figure out what this means for game design, right? Because I, these, these new kind of generative AI, these, these, uh, and uh, these transformer models and all the kind of like neural net stuff that's popping off right now. I was like, oh, I'm going to figure out what this, and I have, messed around with it quite a bit. I've made a bunch of stuff. I don't know for sure. Like, I think in the industry, you can see that it's going to be a powerful tool that is going to get used to kind of like automate like a lot of stuff. Um, and I just don't care about that. Like the idea that like, it's going to cost them less money to make Assassin's Creed 8, you know, <laughs> like, I don't care. Like, I'm interested in like, what are the new kinds of games, right? right. What are the what new games that? What are the games that, that we could not yeah, have imagined? Exactly, exactly. Brand new games and I'm interested in AI as, as an aesthetic uh, in the same way that um, when, the, when they invented the synthesizer, they're like, oh, this is a tool for mimicking the sound of other instruments. Like you can mimic the sound of an orchestra um, with this. Like, uh, but then Kraftwerk comes along. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not what synthesizers are. Synthesizers are about this other thing entirely. Like it's like, it's an entire new genre, a whole new genre, which is about Sound you've never heard the aesthetics of machine. It's a machine yes. aesthetics, right? It's like understanding machine aesthetics. Like I think I, I'm, that's where I'm at with, with AI. I right. want to discover understand the aesthetic yeah, of AI. I want to be the, the, the Africa Bambata of, of AI. You know what I mean? Like what is the, what are the, like, or we the need to talk to my, talk to my friend Grimes. That's oh, yeah. exactly her thing. I mean, she's given her voice away to the world, yes. you know, too. Yes. And, See um, what comes out using AI. And, and people like uh, Holly Herndon is another example of, uh, I don't know if you know Holly's work, but she's uh, amazing. Um, and, you know, but the, the camera is the same way. At first, the camera is like, oh, this is a tool for recording a play. And then 
then you figure out, oh no, it's actually not. It's something much more than that. It's a whole new aesthetic. It opens up a new set of possibilities. So I think that's where we're at with AI and games. I don't know where it's going to go. I have my own projects, my own ideas, and I'm just like, you know, squirreling away at them. But um, I do think it's going to be weird and cool. I'm super excited to be alive at this time. You know what I mean? Like, oh, it, we're, are, we're on the hinge of history right, right now. We get to find out how this all works out. Isn't Ooh, that great? It seems like it in our lifetime. Well, you're more worried about it than, than I think yeah. some people are. I mean, I, I'm, I'm simultaneously extraordinarily excited and extraordinarily terrified. And I, I don't even think I'm oscillating back and forth at this point. I've just figured out how to live with both ex- in existence. Speaking of, you know, the hold, holding concurrent hypotheses. It's going to change so much about uh, how we think about software and how we think about computers. Um, and I think uh, games have a kind of responsibility to help humanity make this transition to whatever it is that's going to happen. Like, because games have always, first of all, games invented computers a little bit and to boy. a degree. Um, but long before there were computers, there were computer-like things that were games. Like chess is like this weird abstract, you know, computational uh, device that we, that, we, that we do for its own sake, right? It's for, for fun and for pleasure. But it's doing it like it's this little rule set that with this symbolic, you know, it's kind of digital in the sense that it doesn't matter where this piece is, except that it's on this square. Like it's physical. Oh, because yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's instead of like continuousness of reality, yeah, it's, it's discrete. discrete. And, yeah. and, and digital in that sense. And so, um, and it was a big inspiration for, for, the, for the origins of computers, looking at things like chess and for Babbage to look at like the mechanical Turk and think, oh, how would you make that, you know? Um, like the first, you know, Turing wrote a, in his head, kind of wrote a program for playing chess. That was one of the first, before he had even invented the idea of a computer, he was like, oh, what, how would you algorithmically capture what it is to play chess, right? And he, that was like one of the first programs wow. uh, ever conceived of. Um, so there is already something in games that is about it, it's like about computation. It's about um, creating a system out of rules and kind of logical operations, and then and then um, having it having its behavior evolve over time and trying to extrapolate and, and predict it and understand it. Um, and so I think, and then of course, video games have often been about try to figure out what computers are good for. You know, well, we, my university got this giant, you know, machine, the UNIVAC, and we use it to like calculate missile trajectories. But then at night, the nerds sneak into the computer lab and they figure out what it's really for. We're just making up imaginary spaces, like a big cave network that you can get lost inside of. And that, you know, and so figuring out, like think about how games drove the market in graphics cards, which then sort of enabled this new generation of machine learning, right? The fact that we had these like, like it's a weird tangled relationship. Um, so I think games have, have always been in this position of helping, figure, helping us figure out what these things are and what they're good for and what we want uh, with them. What do we want to do with computers and, and software? Like what kind of world do we want to live in that's that's uh, shot through with this this uh, with with software and 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 digital stuff and um and i think now is 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 still very much the case where figuring out 
AI and what it is and what the future of humanity is going to be with AI in the picture, I don't think it's just a matter of solving the engineering problem of making AI safe. I think it's, all, it's also about this other harder to pin down question about like, well, what is, what's good about it? Like, what's interesting about it? Like, what do we want from it? Right. Like, of course, we just want the cancer cures and we want to solve global warming. We want all these practical things, but that's not enough, right? It's not enough to just say it's going to be a powerful tool um, because it's something else. It's something more than just a tool. There we go, everyone. Thank you so much for listening or watching, depending on whatever platform you're on. Huge thank you to Frank for taking the time to speak to me. Do go check out his stuff. As always, linked below. Highly recommend his book, The Beauty of Games. It's super elegant and short and delightful. And of course, do check out some of his games, especially the Paperclip Maximizer. Although warning, it will suck you in. As always, please like, share, subscribe, you know, the drill, all of those things. And yeah, I will catch you all again in two weeks. Happy win-winning.